You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. First off, let me say, Ihole, what a beautiful group of people we have in the Zoom Mundo tonight. I say this sincerely, no one's making me say that. This is a wonderful gathering of people for a very, very, very special occasion. For those of you who don't know, in case you stumbled in here by accident, we want to welcome you anyway to City Lights Live, our virtual event series from City Lights that follows in the footsteps of our uh, pre-pandemic in-store calendar. You remember when we used to have these beautiful events upstairs in the poetry room, it'd get all sweaty and everything now from the comfort of your Zoom mundo anywhere in the world, you can tune in to our uh, events. So it's a, it's a mixed blessing, but it's, it's really great, great to see so many people here from all over. And just like the uh, in-store events, the City Lights Live continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums. Before we start, I'd like to just quickly remind all you people out there that the bookstore is now once again open for business. Yes, you can come back inside like in the old days. There's strict uh, health guidelines we're following, sanitizer, face masks are being enforced in the store. But um, if you haven't come back and visited City Lights and you're in La Ria Bahia, please come, come back. The bookstore misses you. I mean that sincerely. I talked to the bookstore today and told me it missed you. So come on back. City Lights uh, would love to see you again. All right. So um, and as many of you know, City Lights is not just a bookstore. It's a publishing house. And tonight we're so excited because we're featuring, in my opinion, one of the most amazing books that City Lights has ever put out. And I do not say this lightly. This is a celebration tonight of Lidat, a history of the East Los Angeles dirigible air transport line by Seshu Foster, that's Seshu with three S's, and the one and only Arturo Ernesto Romo. This book is the wild, seemingly fictitious, yet true history of the East Los Angeles dirigible air transport line. Y'all give it up for this book. Hop off your dirigible, do whatever you need to do, but this is a celebration today, y'all, for real, for real. For those of you that aren't acquainted with the authors of this book, let me just give you quick bios. Seshu Foster is an award-winning writer. He's the recipient of the American Book Award and the Asian American Literary Award in Poetry for World Fall Notebook, this beloved book as well, also put out by City Lights. And he won the Believer Book Award for Atomic Aztec. Ihole! Also put out by City Lights. I see a beautiful pattern here, y'all. Seshu is also urban multicultural poetry, and he was finalist for the Penn Center West Poetry Prize, as well as the Patterson Poetry Prize for City Terrace Field Manual. Seshu is based in Alhambra, Califas. He taught composition and literature in East Los Angeles for over 20 years and at the University of Iowa, Califas Institute for the Arts, and the University of Califas Santa Cruz. His work is published in the Oxford Anthology of Modern American Poetry, Language for a New Century, Poetry from the Middle East, Asia and Beyond, and State of the Union, 50 Political Poems. Seshu's most recent books are City of the Future, Poetry Book, World Ball Notebook, Poetry Book, and Atomic Aztec, a novel. And now this one, this one, this one, Ihole. And his co-author in this beautiful creation, Arturo Ernesto Romo, is an artist. He was born in Los Angeles, Califas in 1980. His work, mostly collaborative mixed media works, but also drawings has been circulated internationally. Fluency, agency, and folly are central themes in Arturo's practice. He sees his artwork as a companion, multiplier, folding folds, netting nets. His art making is pushed through exploration on the streets of East and North 
East Los Angeles, which feed into an ongoing series of collaborations with writer Seshu Foster. He too is based in Alhambra Califas. And y'all joining Seshu and Arturo tonight in conversation is the one and only Carabien Fragosa, whose book release we're celebrating tomorrow. Carabien is a graduate of the Creative Writing MFA program at CalArts, where she worked with writers Douglas Kearney and Norman Klein. Fragosa is founder of Vicious Ladies, a new website publishing women, queer, and non-binary critics of color. She co-edits U.S. Press's acclaimed California cultural journal, Boom California, and is also the founder of South El Monte Art Posse, an interdisciplinary arts colectivo. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in numerous publications, including Ziziva, Alta, Baum, Huizache, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She's the co-editor of East of East, the making of Greater El Monte, and senior writer at the Tropics of Meta. Carabin is the coordinator of the Kingsley and Kate Tufts Poetry Award at Claremont Graduate University, and she lives in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County. Okay, y'all, this is going to be such a wonderful conversation. So I'm done talking. Without further ado, por favorcito, welcome Seshu Foster, Arturo Romo, and Carabin Fragosa. Gracias for that awesome introduction, Josiah. Thank you, everybody out there in Zoom land. It's beautiful to see all of your faces or the representation of your faces with squares. It feels, and it's going to sound really weird, but it feels like coming home, even though we're in this weird space, it feels like coming home to be here with you in the City Lights family. And in particular, especially because I'm here with Seshu and I'm here with Arturo, and we get to talk about their awesome book. And I just have to say that Arturo and Seshu really did change my life in really important ways. And I mean it, I really mean it. When I first read City Terrace, I felt like something important had come across my life. And I was given permission to write about place in a way that I had never had before. And of course, we always have permission to do whatever we want and write whatever we want. But when we see the way Seshu wrote City Terrace, it really opened up a really important space for me to write about place, particularly El Monte, where I'm from. So Seshu, it's just an honor to be here with you and to talk about your book. And then Arturo, I mean, Another one, I, I know them separately and to have them together is just kind of like a dream. Arturo, I was transformed by my experience of Holy Jolina at Tropico de Nopal. Years ago, I was invited by someone to come check it out. I forgot who that friend, whatever happened to that person, but the show is still in my mind and it just kind of blew something up in my brain. And I've just been a fan of your work, all of it, including your activism for many years ever since then. So again, to have you both together in this book is just phenomenal to me. And I also saw Seshu at Tropico de Nopal once. I think you read Atomic Aztec. I think one of the important things that I've learned from both of you guys is, and it's also part of this book, and we'll get into that in a second, is the ways in which we belong to place instead of place belonging to us. And I think I first heard that from you, Arturo, in one of our conversations where you talked about what are the ways that we actively belong to a place instead of owning it? How, how do we belong to it? And then also by extension, how do we belong to each other? And I feel like a lot of the work that Seshu does in his writing and in this book addresses that. And especially in this moment of gentrification and displacement for various reasons, in addition to gentrification, 
we ask these questions again and again, how do we belong to a place when we're no longer able to belong there for whatever different reasons that we have for being displaced? And so this book in particular, East LA Dirigible Air Transport Lines, is about East LA. It's about LA's east side, not just East LA proper, but the east side of LA. And a lot of these questions about belonging and about narratives and who those narratives belong to and what, what happens to these narratives through time, how are they erased or destroyed or excavated once again and recovered come to mind. And so the question of narrative is something that, what is a narrative? Especially when a narrative like the ones that you guys have here is kind of like, not just an octopus, but just some like other creature, not just a kraken, but like some other monster with so many legs and so many arms that it's hard to keep track of. And what is this narrative anyway that we're telling about place? So I'm just gonna, gonna throw some questions at you or some gibberish and then you guys can jump in and then we'll make time for you guys to read at some point. But all of this is to say, what was your experience, I guess, in telling this enormous narrative comprised of so many other narratives, almost countless narratives? Like, what was your experience putting them all together, the real ones and the invented ones? Well, Arturo and I were collaborating for years on a website, the elaguide.org which is still up on the internet and presumed to present maps of historical and cultural sites of East Los Angeles, most of which were not, I don't know, recognized by the city at large in any kind of official way, but were important to people on the East side, like the CSO office. And the CSO was the organization that Dolores Huerta and and Cesar Chavez got their organizing training at, and then later in a later reincarnation served as the, the VEX, the punk venue that Los Illegos and The Brat and other bands played at. And so there's this rich multi-layered history of, of East LA that the book implies, it's trying to imply by excavating some of the subconscious and some of the and seeing some of the some of the fantasies and stories of people rather than just the addresses and the street names to go beyond the surface and in that way through many people's voices through through a kind of collectivity of voices to avoid or abjure or subvert the individual for a collective imagination of place because I think consumer culture and capitalism tells you that, you know, it's all about you and it's all about your consumption. It's all about you making money and spending it. But actually we live our whole lives dependent on everybody else, you know, from our parents to, to our people, whoever our people are, they're taking care of us. Our lives depend on them. We are a part of them. They are a part of us. And so the narrative attempts to allude to that kind of collectivity. Arturo. Yeah, def def definitely. Um, it made the question made me think about a, a mural project that I had um, had worked on at Franklin High School in Highland Park, where I worked with some high school students, some very dedicated high school students, and my cousin Reyes Flores, who's also an urban farmer, who then appears in the narrative of the book. And the job of you know we were looking at at muralismo, muralism at, as it existed in Mexican culture, Latino culture, and then Chicano culture. And the attempt to like tell a cohesive narrative around place 
and around a people and their relationship to place was like is like central to the practice of mural making and mural making is also place making putting your history on the wall of a place having a shared history and so in the process of making that mural which was ostensibly the history of northeast la where this um school is located we myself and the students and and my cousin would take field trips to different areas and learned about Tongva history, learned about the natural history of a place. And uh, what we noticed is that it was impossible to tell the story of a place without shifting points of view very quickly. And so the composition of the mural ended up being prismatic and uh, cut up. The landscape of Northeast LA is very hilly. And so you could be on a trail and you could be looking to your right and you know, be confronted by a little, a little cliff face and then look to your left and have a vista that goes on for 100 miles. And so that, that the difference of points of view, there was no way really to tell the story of the place without radically different points of view in the same picture plane. And I think that's kind of fed into the ELA guide, fed into some of the radio performances that we did later, me and Sesho, and definitely into the, into the, the novel structure in terms of multiple points of view. Like Seshu was saying, we came to the idea that you can't tell the uh, the story of place without multiplicity and, and collectivity. Yeah, totally. And it was a narrative, like you're saying, that is so full of multiplicity and it's almost difficult to tell. I find it that sometimes folks have a hard time summarizing what the novel is about because there's so many components. And I think from, from my view, it it really defies like this impulse to tell like a, a single, very unified narrative that is easily consumed, which is usually I'm thinking a lot about gentrification and how a community is sort of packaged around a narrative and then sold to investors, to new people who want to buy homes. And the, there's this whole like illusion. There's this whole like made up story about this place. And this novel is just so against that. I mean, even if you really insist on following your characters from beginning to end, I feel like the narrative like just bucks us all over the place and it, it's really broken up and shattered. And again, it really like defies that impulse to tell a single unified narrative. And I, I think that's so badass. And I think it also drives some people kind of crazy, especially when not only it's broken up in these ways, but there's so, so much detail. There's like lists and lists of things and descriptions of dreams and all these like chingaderas, like everywhere it seems. It's just like overwhelming. I read one of your reviews and this one person was just totally like, frazzled by the tedium of so much stuff that you guys jammed this novel with. What do you have to say about that, about this like response that people have to, to just the chingaderanes, like just so much stuff crammed into seeming chaos for people. Chingaderismo. Chingaderismo. <laughs> you can use it. It's open access. <laughs> it's not really a question. It's just like, I think people get unsettled by just how refracted the narrative is and how jam-packed it is with information that maybe readers don't always know what to do with. Like the appendices, for example, all the documents that are back there. And even throughout the, like, how do you I don't know, what is the place of all of that? And how do people, how, how do you want your readers to make sense of 
all of that information in the way that you present it? I think that I'm sort of following the Julio Cartazar idea that the reader has agency. The reader has the choice. The reader has the choice of reading some of the appendices before reading the book or after reading the book. The reader has the choice of the order of, of what to read and, and actually the so-called decline in reading as part of popular culture is partly about that, that the reader constructs their own meaning out of text. When the reader goes through the text, you know, unlike a movie, which a movie is going to show the image that it's going to show every time they watch the movie is going to show that same image in the same order, in the same sequence. In this book and in other books, readers get to pick, readers get to choose. They get to move through it like they move through the landscape, I feel. They get to move through the landscape at their own pace and at their own uh, direction. And it is sort of less coercive in that sense, I feel. Yeah, so my experience when I first picked up the book, I I started at the beginning and then like two minutes into it, I was like, this isn't gonna work. So I just opened another random page right in the middle and it was all about Noah, Noah Purifoy's Desert Art Museum out in Joshua Tree. And I happened to be in Joshua Tree when I was reading it. So it just totally, and I had never been there to the Noah Purifoy space. And so- Then you had to go. And then I went. And so I read what you wrote and then it totally like informed my, my experience while I was visiting. So it's just, I don't know, just kind of interesting the way after reading a book like this and you go out and you look at these actual locations, you look at it with like a whole new sense of possibility, right? Like you look like you look at the sculpture and all of a sudden you're not thinking of it as a sculpture anymore. You're thinking of it as like, maybe you can fly on this piece of junk right here. Why not? So I don't know. I think that's one of the things that your book does, Arturo and Seshu. Like it just kind of opens up a sense of possibility that is like enormous. And I find it really just like, it's a big relief, especially like in the world that we're living right now, where we're like confined to this reality, whatever this is. And then we read this book and it just kind of like blows up what is possible. There's all these fantastical elements to it. And I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys about is how did you, it felt to me like you really constructed this alternate reality where all these things that are normally not possible and things that normally may not be able to fly or happen do. So I was just wondering, how did you go about constructing the fantastic elements, like the fantasy aspect to this? Did you spend hours and hours just like geeking out, like figuring out the details of stuff or how did you construct this world? It's Arturo's fault. <laughs> I had a feeling it was, but... Actually, Dolores told me it was both of your guys' fault. She said it. Don't tell her a secret. <laughs> well, I, I think the collaboration, like, ooh, there, there's so much there, Caribbean, about like a narrative tendency to, to sell something, to sell like a singular picture and how that's tied to like commercialization and it's tied to commodification of, of something. Like maybe the process of commodification and stripping the spirit away from something is related where one of the ways it happens is through like narrative reduction and um i think it goes back to what Sashu was talking about in terms of like our our ethic like our 
the way that we started in trying to do something similar to what City Terrace Field Manual did, which is like capture a place by being in a place, by being of a place. And the ELA guide, the website was kind of an attempt, web, web 1.0 attempt, like that website looks like it was made in 1996 or something. But, you know, it's like an attempt to do this thing of like capturing a place through links, like literally links on a website. And just like City Terrace Field Manual kind of had multiple points of view and cross-references and an index that went all over the place. And so I think like what we started doing, like our collaboration in terms of like entering into that fantasy world was kind of related to that. Like a lot of riffing, a lot of uh, being self-referential. I would create maybe like a character that was referred to in an exhibition and says she would write about it, give that character a whole backstory. I would take that backstory and then add some fictions to it, provide some like proof that the character existed by giving it a photograph, like a historic photo. So she would then take that, add an element. So we're always creating evidence for each other. And I think like that building up of evidence was kind of like building land on water or something. We're trying to like slowly inch out and build some more of the fiction. Maybe, Sashu, maybe you can follow up with this, but most of it felt to me like we were doing this while we were exploring East LA, driving around um, and kind of riffing, like making jokes and laughing and just going back and forth with each other. Yeah, so we drove around East LA together for, for several years researching the ELA guide and, and just researching East LA in general. So, for example, on the sides of many of the, the little mom and pop grocery stores, there's a painting of the Virgin de Guadalupe that presents some kind of mystical meaning to the, to the owners of the store. But somebody was going around and defacing those. They would like spray paint over the faces of all of those. And, and we were looking at those and speculating on, you know, who that was, why were they doing that? You know, what did that mean? And so that became a chapter in the book. It became an appendix. But, you know, so, so there were all these kinds of idiosyncratic and place-specific mysteries to East LA like that, that we were investigating. And, you know, like some of them have factual answers, like the campaign of hate that the Avenues gang was allegedly committing against African-Americans living in Highland Park, trying to terrorize them out of the neighborhood. And then like two or three months ago, one of them pled guilty to firebombing African-American families at Ramona Gardens Housing Project. So those became questions. You know, there's a whole list of questions about the mysteries of East L.A. in the book. One of the questions is about the campaign of hate and like, where's the headquarters of it at? And then we purported to ask those questions to Oscar Zeta Acosta, who disappeared in 1974, but who wrote these fantastic autobiographical fictions about East LA and was the lawyer for my former neighbor. <laughs> wow. Do you guys want to read? Yes. All right. Oh, Lightning and the General Hospital. We were in charge of the Ella, that office where we left the ghosts of the electricity howling in the bones of her face in charge, instructed under all circumstances to tell collection agencies no one is here by that name. It didn't matter who they were calling for, not swirling number one, swirling number two not Jose Lopez Feliu, not Sergio, not Liki Venteria, not anybody, certainly not me, Agustina Sandate, AKA Tina Lerma, 
collection agents tried different tactics to try and get a line on who might be in, but we were the only ones around. Then they tried to find out who we were, pulling names off the list they got from who knows where, but they asked for Melissa instead of Mel or Agustina Andate instead of Tina. So we told them there was nobody here by that name. My name is Tina and me and Mel are all that's left in the head office of an organization that once employed 3,600. Eladat, employee owned, once operated passenger and dirigible lines throughout the Pacific Rim across Grand Apacheria from outliers in Cusco, Baja, California, Yuma, Arizona, Winnemucca and Elko, Nevada, Los Mochis, Durango and Torreon, Mexico with the interconnections to Ho Chi Minh City, Shanghai, Bangor, Bangkok, Chiang Mai, Osaka, as well as the only service remaining at one point to the Miami Sea Towers of sunken Florida, sticking up out of the tepid waters of the Atlantic where it merges with the Gulf of Mexico. Posters collecting dust around the office advertise our original interurban runs from Pacoima to Elysian Park from the hills of El Sereno to the hills of Tijuana. But that was all over apparently by the time Mel and I got a clue and decided we better find out what was going on. Finally, somebody called who didn't bother asking for anyone specific. They just did some kind of breathing exercise followed by screaming threats of a violent sexual nature. Kind of creepy, I admit. That's the kind of world we live in, isn't it? We weren't really scared per se, that ain't Mel's style but it's the kind of thing that will linger in the back of your mind and encourage certain thoughts once in a while. So Mal or I would check out the street out front through the blinds every time we closed up the office. We left Snoopy's picture, our spiritual mascot. See illustration number five below. The black and white chihuahua that Jose and Swirling had photographed on the 4th Street Bridge early in the 21st century. Watching protectively over the empty offices, his Colima dog spirit barking from the corner of the chief executive's desk, so to speak, even though Enrique Pico hadn't been to this branch in years. To think that our director, Enrique Pico's grand vision of lighter than air titanium airship lines could have united the world and rejuvenated the ruins of self-immolated capitalism on a socialistic footing. It almost worked. What the hell happened? Mel or I cracked the back door as we held our breath against a ferocious blast of superheated air, peered out and then scooted to the car that had baked all day against the wall of the building, almost leaving its shadow embedded in the stucco, like after an atomic blast. We cranked the starter and went roaring across the empty parking lot at 30 to 40 miles per hour like the dust devil. The hot wind blasting down off the eroded hillside covered a thicket of dried thistles in the same yellow dust, we tried to shift off the windshield, flicking on windshield wipers with a dry scraping and clicking. 1967 Chevy Caprice station wagon, the black paint oxidized into a bronze patches. As the car pounded and slammed across the eroded ruts of the parking lot, raising a dust cloud that drifted on the air like a flag of yellowish dirt against a fulvous sky. This all happened after Los Angeles had been destroyed by death rays from hairballs from outer space. That's not the scientific or official name. We'd seen it on TV in black and white reruns. That was the official explanation given by some fascist experts from Silicon Valley, the previously unknown group Radeon, sponsored by several federal agencies. They played clips and videos over and over, showing City Hall blasted to pieces by death rays, freeway overpasses collapsing, 
cars and semi-trucks burning on Highway 15, etc. White guys with automatic rifles were driving around in Chevy Camaro convertibles, protecting white people from Mexican cartels and tamal vendors, firing at anything suspicious, changing high-capacity magazines and banana clips without even glancing down, or ever taking off those Ray-Ban sunglasses. They assured us we were under attack from space devils, so-called, who could easily disguise themselves behind Muslim veils or ancient customs of non-Western peoples who were out to destroy God's green earth. So it was up to them to protect and to serve, to keep order. And they further assured us that the destruction raining down from the skies had absolutely nothing to do with secret government projects or corporations with their heads up their asses. The plan was to fix everything with trillions of dollars of spending, it was said, on rockets, more giant rockets than you could ever imagine that they would fix in orbit over the Earth, vast, humongous, flexible arrays of solar refractors gracefully orbiting the planet like immense nanotechnological yo-yos, and some nukes to rain down on enemies and terrorists and stuff, all of it coordinated from secret underground bunkers in the Utah desert and, of course, the Internet. Experts and spokespersonifiers assured us that we were witnessing with our very eyes was not climate change induced. The wildfires burning up what was left of the trees, firestorms scorching the west and the south and southeast and Florida, so fucked up it was just a vague memory of grasses and clumps of foliage still above water, with geysers of flame from wells polluted by toxic frick-fracking fluids vomiting fireballs hundreds of feet into the air, from the desert to the sea, while noxious fumes billowed inland from dense carpets of algal scum off several dying oceans. This was all due to the hairballs from outer space, said the voice of our dreams, repeating what they were told, which were blasting the USA and Europeans with death rays. I didn't ever actually see these death rays myself, and Mel didn't either, she said, nor did I ever meet anyone who said they did. But of course, by this time, we all had urgent business to take care of in order to survive. I still remember the good old days with nostalgia, you know, when the orange trash gyre spun in the sky and sucked up the entire town of Joshua Tree and the Noah Purifoy National Monument and spit it out, curled it in a million pieces of debris upon the Southland in a swath of terror from Tohunga to Temecula. Plus, once established, the orange gyre split into two and stabilized. Twin gyres spinning over the city in an atmosphere that varied from fulvous orange to bilious gray to dense black as each gyre disgorged utility trucks, microwave towers disguised as fake trees, water heaters, oil pipelines, I-beams, 200-ton granite boulders, and miscellaneous garbage, dead dogs, and partial corpses in a rain of filth and whatnot, flinging them down upon the landscape, if you could still call it that, of Southern California. I remembered the days of the old trash gyres with nostalgia because it was nicer than the current era of the death rays. Compared to now, that was the easy life. Thank you, man, that's scary. So as I'm listening to this and as I was reading it, or actually as I was reading the whole thing, I kept trying to locate us in our present moment on that timeline of collapse that you have in the novel. So sometimes it felt like, man, we're in that really bad phase. Uh, of the death rays post hairball. And then sometimes I think, no, we're in the good old days still before, but either way, it just feels like we're in this moment of collapse. Well, we are, I mean, it's a fact, right? I mean, we experienced all those fires last summer and we should be getting ready for more fires soon. So this is just reality, like environmental collapse, 
and the infrastructural collapse with the kind of homelessness that we're experiencing in LA and other many other cities, a lot of parts of the United States, collapse is part of our reality now. So on the one hand, we know that we're reading fiction and that it's sometime in that distant future, but it's also right now. It's just like the state of emergency that we're in right now. Anyway, that's my two cents right there. I don't know if Josiah had some questions for us to jump into. Yeah, sorry about that. We had a, we had technical difficulties, which is really just a generational thing. But uh, uh, we do have some questions. Can I sneak one in real quick? I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Okay. And Arturo, what's the influence of ASCO in your guys' collaboration? Because I, I, I kept seeing ASCO and a lot of it in there, but I'd really love to hear y'all talk a little bit about that. Yeah, ASCO was a huge influence on me as an artist on the book. For those who don't know, ASCO is a, was an um, experimental art group, a performance art group out of the 60s, well, 70s and 80s, based in LA, a Chicano art group that did street performances and was riffing off of ideas of um, movie making and representation, but also exploring elements of, of being outside of society in various ways, oppression and claiming space. And I think, yeah, ASCO was a, was a huge influence just in terms of their approach to reality, at least for me. I, I think that they come out of a mural making tradition too. Two of their members are really, you know, really great muralists. And I think that they were, at least in my view, the influence that they had on me was that they were taking that ethic of, of muralism and taking it off the wall and putting it into space, into the performance space. And then doing so within the context of like a highly politicized human rights movement called the Chicano movement out of the 70s, out of which I was born. Asco is like very, very important to the book, as is like the Chicano movement in general. I guess what, what I might add to that is that one of the key members of Asco is Willie Erron, who's from City Terrace, where I grew up. And Willie established, when he was in high school, a mural practice and an art studio on, on City Terrace Drive. So I would walk by his studio and I would see his murals in the community. And it impressed me as a high school student that he was making art in the community, for the community, about the community, in the place where, where he lived. And as he put it, uh, getting chased by cholos because he was wearing French ruffles and painting instead of um, engaging in you know, gang violence. And his brother, who was like more of a gangster, was stabbed some 60 times in an in a alley behind Plaza Market in City Terrace. And so Willie, as Willie said, tells it, he painted a mural there as a kind of prayer, an anti-violence prayer. And, you know, that really impressed me when I was young, that, that you could take art and try and make it into an anti-violence prayer for your community. Gracias for that. I have a million other questions, but I'm going to share. I'm going to let other people. Lisa is asking or saying that she's intrigued by Arturo's exploration of folly. Uh, wants to know, Arturo, how does folly fit in this universe and in this work? It's a great, great question. I think folly is, um, is like an opening, right? It, it's an opening. It cracks open like the impervious narrative that we tell, that we're, that we're taught uh, about the world that we live in. I think I want to like kind of maybe tie it back to what Caribbean had said about about like the the passage that we wrote. Not only are we experiencing collapse right now, but we live on a land that 
experienced cultural collapse and genocide and the survival of that genocide. And I think rereading the book, like after it was done and packaged and, you know, it existed in a book form, taking a look at it again, I realized how much of the book does refer to the place where we're at and the history of, of that collapse and that we are, we're inheritors of that collapse, that that collapse lives within us, that we're displaced people and that we're, we're part of this project as people who are colonized and subject to violence and genocidal violence. We're also part of a project of survival and, and um, recovery. And so that, that kind of is, is through the book, like the futuristic apocalypses are also like just echoes of like these previous apocalypses that have already happened. And so I think that's why it's so resonant. It's not only that we're experiencing collapse right now, but collapse has happened and we're living on a land that, that was taken and is continually taken. And that's our existence as, as, we, as we know it. In terms of folly, I think that folly is useful because the, like a colonizing and capitalist narrative doesn't leave any room for space or folly or imperfection or humor. I think that's where tricksters are really valuable for our practice of decolonization and, and just survival. And so that's where folly comes in. It kind of it cracks the surface of, of that gentrified, deracinated narrative, I guess. Pachuca, who you may know, Elaine Katzenberger, would like to know, is Leaky Renteria an actual person? Seshu knows him. We, we're trying not to give him too much publicity because he's more popular than us. <laughs> so we don't want to talk about him because <laughs> everybody likes him better than us. And why? That's what I want to know. Why, Arturo? I have a, another, a second part to that question. Is Swirling Alhambra a real person? <laughs> What's up with that guy? That guy, he used to be named Swirling Wheel Nuts when he was on Facebook, but he got kicked off of Facebook. So then he had to change his name to get back on Facebook. And then he was hoping to get kicked off of Facebook, but <laughs> they changed their algorithms and then they didn't kick him off. Speaking of Facebook, uh, a person with the name Facebook iPhone wants to know uh, if the book is a metaphor for the RTD bus lines. Probably, probably. In the, in the sense that, as I remember it, the RTD, if you want to go across Los Angeles, it takes you hours. It takes you hours to get across town. And, you know, the difference being that dirigibles explode in a highly cinematic way and the RTD just pulls over to the side and breaks down. We have a, a Pocho culinary question from Zach. Will Seshu publish the narrator's barbecue chicken recipe in recipe form, or will we have to roll with a long form description? Definitely like Bobby Seal, I hope to produce a barbecue cookbook in my time. That, that is one of, my, one of my goals in life, barbecue cookbook. It will outsell all other books that I've ever worked on. Honestly, Seshu and Arturo, as much as I love this book, my favorite, favorite parts were the appendices. Like at the end, there was just such a, what, how the hell did you figure out how to put them together like that? Or did you, did you just throw what, what happened? Because you, you've rewritten the timeline for me in a beautiful way. And I finished the book and then I got to the appendices and then, ihole, it was just started all over again. And thank you for bringing Oscar back to us. It was so special seeing him for real. And, uh, could you talk a little bit about that, that part of the book? Because for me, it was such an intriguing, beautiful part. Yeah, I, I think it was 
we had produced like part of the the project of the book was just producing like different media so so Seshu was writing I was producing visual art Seshu would produce visual art I would write a little bit and we also had a performance called the recent rupture radio hour we had a website and so it was just manifesting in all these different ways like I think the the book is kind of the product is like one form that the pro that the project took and so even within the book, there were like things that we didn't know quite how to fit into like mm. a novel form. And what they were doing is kind of providing like proof, proof that the characters really existed. And one of the subtexts of the book or frames of the book is also that a lot of this is like recovered history. And to have a recovered history, you need like some proof that it existed. So in the appendix, there are things like recipes and letters and other types of ephemera that purport to prove that this that this uh, company really existed. I like how you said it, it kind of started you all over again because another thing we were trying to do is interrupt the flow of being able to like understand. And uh, sometimes like we did that with image and text that contradict each other. And sometimes we did it with imagery that was just a little hard to decipher. And sometimes the text itself would be redacted or too fuzzy to read and we wanted people to be reading it with a little bit of like interruption a little static and elaine mentioned that some of the humor is directly pointed at the various social movements of the 60s and 70s that arturo's parents were part of or that i was part of and in our research we went to the anthony quinn library in east los angeles and we pulled out a bunch of movement publications and so that's directly responsible for the quality, the image quality of the, of the appendices. I mean, like you could tell, right? Maybe you can't tell. But anyway, that's, that's the way they used to look. Beautiful. Okay, and we got some people looking for jobs here. They're going to start <laughs> job solicitating y'all. Uh, this is related to Ben's question. Are there currently any job openings at Eladat? How does one apply? And uh, Stacy would like to know what type of license do you need to drive a dirigible? Are you taking applications? Times are tough, me gente. They need jobs. Some of these writers and MFA type. So help them out. What, what, what do we need here? If you go the MFA route, you're going to need a real job. <laughs> yeah, get, get some skills. Yeah, as part of our research, we, we did find out that William Powell created the Bessie Coleman Aero Clubs in the 1920s and uh, provided scholarships for African-American men and women to learn how to pilot airplanes. And so when we get the funding, we're going to do that. We're looking for funders. You heard it here, gente. Get that without some funding. Oh, one question from Alini here. Arturo and Seshu, can you talk a little bit more about the process and experience of collaborating with each other? It's hell. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I guess, what, what would you like to know about it? Ooh, Alini, here's your chance. What would you like to know about it? This is like one of them expose type questions. That, that's like a gift. You give, give, give someone that, that kind of leeway. Come up with something juicy. We got one new message here. It says, oh, she says she wants to know everything. Okay, so this is a little known fact. We've only had one board meeting, Eladat board meeting. We invited a bunch of people to Arturo's house. So I went to uh, King Taco and I bought some chicken. And uh, we had these people over. And they are our board. They didn't know it when they came over, but there they are. That's our board. Those are the people in charge of us. We had them read poetry and we played them a slideshow that told about our continuously rising levels of ridership throughout the entire city. 
And now they're responsible for everything that happened. What else? Oh, about the collaboration. Ben Ehrenreich has contributions and Raul Ruiz. All the people, the people who are mentioned in the acknowledgements pages. And I forgot some, and I'm too ashamed to say who that I forgot. But there's a long list of collaborators sort of at the end that, that we think. I'm sorry, I love that, the thanking at the end. It reminded me of the old Public Enemy albums when they just say gracias to everybody. You know, you had everybody in there, man, like Barbara Jane Ray, like it was beautiful. But that's really what it's about. I think like in terms of talking about collaboration, I think Seshu talking about the board is really how we wanted to write the book. I think there's, there's a certain individualist mentality around making art. We're trained as artists, especially when we're professionalized through MFA programs or higher education to think of ourselves as like individuals, maybe even like individual geniuses that have like this unique vision uh, where actually like we're members and products of community and this ongoing process of existing within community. And so collaboration isn't just between me and Seshu, it's also like with all the people that we work with and that we exist with. And so, yeah, that's kind of like what the board is about too. It definitely is like a different style of making work. I haven't really produced a major work that hasn't been in collaboration in many years, uh, either working with collective groups or with Sandra de la Losa, who I think is here, or with Seshu. And that's been a conscious choice to see if I could deprogram some of the teachings that I got in terms of like thinking of myself as an individual who produces like this super unique work that then when I get praised for, I'm praised for like my individual vision. And I think that wasn't helpful for me. It wasn't helpful for my health as an artist or my health as a member of a community. So collaborations often talked about in terms of how difficult it is, but it's really a beautiful process. And I think it's framed as difficult because we live in like a very individualist society. Uh, nobody asks an individual artist, like, how do you work alone? You know, like <laughs> it's usually asked about collaborations because they're like framed as more difficult. Also because there's so much process involved in that relationship, right? And that takes time. And I feel like there's not a lot of patience for time-consuming projects. I don't know. I feel like people just want to see, not everybody, obviously, but there's this like appetite for what's next and what's next, especially if you're like, if you come to become a successful artist or writer, there's this like immediate attention paid to what's the next masterpiece that you're going to bust out for everybody to love. Whereas in a collaboration, it's a process that you have to commit often a lot of time to often many years. I mean, from what I understand, it took close to a decade or something to write this novel. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Thanks to everybody who helped us, who worked on it. Thank you to, to everybody who gave us encouragement along the way and coffee and food and, and came to our board meeting, who looked at our slideshows, who <laughs> came to the radio presentations. In one radio presentation, we tried to interview plants, plants on the radio. It was, yeah, it was a good idea. Yeah, had limited success. Well, I want to thank everybody also, just Josiah, thank you, and Seshu and Arturo, and this has been fantastic. I think there's going to be great expectation, though, Seshu, and if you want to jump into this collaborative process as well for that chicken cookbook, I think like, Elaine has some great title ideas, Sizzling with Seshu, I think will be a big hit. So thank you to everybody for joining us, and don't forget to buy the book, and enjoy your evening, enjoy the novel. Give it up, y'all, for Arturo Romo, Seshu Foster, and Caribbean Fragosa. 
such a beautiful event, such a beautiful talk. Gracias so much for tuning in. And also, like they were saying, if you haven't bought the book yet, Por Favorcito, the bookstore, could use some business still. Uh, yeah, so if you're, if you're able to support independent bookstores, because we cannot imagine this landscape without bookstores, can we? So Seshu's book, Atomic Aztec, and uh, World Ball Notebook as well. They're all City Lights published. And uh, just so you know, I was broadcasting out of uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's office just now, sending you some bookstore love. This is our, our, our Padres uh, spot here. And uh, this is San Francisco, y'all. This is the roots right here. So please come see us, come visit us. Don't forget us, support independent bookstores. Gracias again, Seshu, Arturo, and Caribbean. It was such a beautiful event. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.